Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see change lives, and we hope this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy the message. Well, hey, everyone. Uh, it's so good to be with you. My name is Mark Coulter. I'm one of the pastors here at the Valley Church. I hope your summer is going really well. Today, we kick off a new series from the book of Revelation. I'll be sharing with that, about that in just a second. Well, I have this friend, my, my, my friend's name's Bob, and yeah, I do just have one friend. That shouldn't surprise you if you know me now. But uh, Bob is one of the most misunderstood guys I've ever met in my life. I've known Bob for 20 years. He's an incredible guy. Uh, he's one of those guys who would give the shirt off his back. He's helped me out in some different pinches over the years. Uh, I remember one time I needed, my car was broken down and I needed to get home for Christmas and he just let me borrow his car. He had no car. He just, he just let me borrow his and use the other one that the, his family had. So, but man, he just is misunderstood. There's a lot of people I know that when they say Bob, they get, they, uh, they're, they uh, maybe have had a bad interaction with them or they just they have this feeling that he's someone that he's not. And maybe you know some misunderstood people. Maybe you are one of those people who's misunderstood. And I share that because the book of Revelation is one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. Actually, it's probably one of the most misunderstood writings of all time. So much confusion, so much misinterpretation, so much, uh, so many imagery things that we don't know what to make sense of. And so there's books after books after books. You can read one book on Revelation and then read another one and they like refute each other. And so my desire over this ne- these next six weeks, so we're going to do a six-week series this summer on Revelation. I encourage you to keep coming back to us uh, each week, invite friends. Uh, you're going to learn a lot of new things. And I really, more than anything else, want to show you what it really meant. Uh, and not only what it meant then, but what it means for us today. And my goal too is that like all the times when we open up God's word, that you would become more biblical and have more biblical knowledge, that we would walk out of this series so much with such a greater understanding of the Bible and so many other aspects of it. In fact, the revelation doesn't make sense if you don't know the Old Testament. There's over 500 uh, allusions to the Old Testament, in the book of Revelation. Actually, 70% of the verses in Revelation have some contextual component to the Old Testament. And so we're going to look at that over this next month and a half. How does the Old Testament fit together with the book of Revelation when we think that it's like on its own little journey itself? So I'm really excited about this. Uh, It's important to know kind of context, some setting stuff. So this, this was written by the Apostle John. And he's on the island of Patmos. He had been exiled to the island of Patmos. It was written around A.D. 96. And so this island of Patmos that he's on is is, still exists today. Uh, People can take tours of it. If you're ever out in the Mediterranean area, you could take a tour of the island of Patmos. It's very jagged, very rocky. Uh, He would have been later on in his years of life there, probably in in his 90s himself. Uh, hard labor. Uh, they would have probably been chiseling rocks uh, most of the day. He had been banished there by the emperor Domitian, who we'll talk about in just a little bit. Now, it's, in, it's very important to understand that Revelation is a letter. 
it's, it's a letter that was written in a very specific time in a very, to a sp- very specific people in a very specific place, very specific time, people, and place. And that is so foundational. We're going to look at what that kind of means today. And believe it or not, and this is where we kind of have no idea about this, believe it or not, the book of Revelation's primary theme is a book of comfort. It's a book of comfort, and it's a book of courage to the first century Christians. Now, one thing you're going to hear me say a lot, you're even going to see it on your screen in a moment, is this revelation, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them, okay? And you're going to hear me say that all the time. In fact, the whole Bible, I could say that for any verse you read in the Bible, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So the key question we have to come back to today in every week of this series uh, is, is what did this mean to the first century hearers or readers of this word? Because it cannot mean to us something that it did not mean to them. And that's where we kind of go awry. That's where we become very misunderstood and Revelation becomes very misunderstood because we try to, to make it say something to us now that it didn't mean to them then. And that's not a good thing. Actually, when it comes to reading and interpreting and applying scripture, you have to go to the context of what did it mean to that listener and then build from there. Now, before we dive in and do look at the text today, we're going to be in Revelation 1. I do want to say to you, remind you, we're going to receive communion at the end of the sermon. And so if you're watching us today in your living room and you can run to the kitchen fast, turn up the volume so you can hear me. But if you want to grab some bread and some juice and some crackers, we're going to receive communion together at the end of this sermon today. So let's just dive right in. We're going to be in Revelation 1. We're going to read actually all of Revelation 1 today. I'm going to start with the first nine verses, and then we're going to have some dialogue about that. It said, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This was written to the first century church that was under enormous persecution 
but it's also written for us today to apply it. It was written to this audience, the audience that was going through immense persecution, and I'm going to explain in just a second, but very foundational. We're going to apply it at the end of the sermon. It is written for us. What does it mean for us? What are we supposed to do about this? How is it supposed to change our life? How is it supposed to impact how we live on a daily basis? In fact, this book sets us up into a fight. It's a, it's a, there's an intense spiritual battle going on then. There's an intense spiritual battle going on now. And it's going to be that way until God sets all things right. And so the book of Revelation, it is like an end book or end cap as far as you have Genesis and then Revelation, everything in between, how God started everything and then how everything is going to finish as we get into the later parts of Revelation. So it is a bookend, literally a bookend to the Bible. But again, we have to understand that this sets up the battle, the battle that is existing then, the battle that continues, and we, we want to pretend there is no battle or we don't want a battle. And as long as we're here on this earth and as long as before Jesus has, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, folks, there will be a battle. There will be a battle between the kingdom of darkness and Satan and the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ. Now, it was written, and John says, to the seven churches. This was the seven churches of Asia, which uh, would have been, is in modern-day Turkey. It's very fascinating, by the way, the churches that are listed. So in two weeks, we're going to look at that in chapters 2 and 3 of the seven different churches. Each church receives a letter from Jesus, essentially, that, that John has written down of what they're doing well and what they aren't doing well. And so uh, this, it, in, the order it was given, actually, of these different churches would have been a, a route that a, a someone would have followed. If you were taking this letter and hand-delivering it, which, of course, they didn't have you know, pl- trains, planes, automobiles, but if you were walking and hand-delivering it, you would have went in that sequence. It, that, that would have been a normal path to hit those seven churches on the way that had been started. These were relatively young churches, of course. It also is fascinating that these seven churches were, were, were fairly well-populated places, and they were the seven places where there are postal centers. The seven postal centers existed in, that, uh, in the world, essentially, but in that area at that time were located there. So the whole purpose you can see by how, how Christ set this up is that this letter would not only hit those seven churches, but it would be circulated to all the other churches that existed. As I said earlier, it it was written in roughly AD 96. uh, And this is after three decades of intense persecution. Jesus died around AD 30. There was about 30 years of peace in the church and and, and growth in the church and and just awesome things that were happening. Some of those recorded in the book of Acts and and Paul's missionary journeys. But then they hit a period of of, from AD 60 to about AD 90, and there's some flex of room there, but of intense persecution. The first wave, there was three waves. The first wave was in AD 65. That was Emperor Nero. You maybe heard of Nero, heard of him in class growing up in in school and in history class. Emperor Nero was in AD uh, AD 65. That persisted on, uh, that persecution, until Vespian took over in uh, AD 67. And that's when things really got ramped up on the persecution. Vespian would... um, would light Christians on fire and put them in the courtyard as human candles. They would put Christians into the arena with lions and they would be devoured. That's why James talks about a roaring, that Satan's like a roaring lion looking to devour. They would have understood contextually like that. Um, I, I just want to stop right there before we move on and say, you know, 
I think in 2021, we, we, I, I hear Christians say this, man, especially in America, we're under just intense persecution. You know, all these rights have been taken away and things have gotten so bad. And I just want to like speak some truth to us right now. Like we're not under persecution. There might've been some liberties. There might've been some freedoms and that is what it is. But I'm telling you, and you could go talk to, and if anyone's listening in, in some countries right now in this world, in Iran and Sub-Saharan Africa and China, um, they would correct us and explain to us and share stories with us that would change our tune on what persecution is defined as. And so I think we have to keep that in context. I know I've heard it so often, and come on, we, we have to just get real and say, well, I don't think Christians have been lit on fire in the U.S. lately. I don't think we've been put in with the lions yet. And this was real stuff that was happening for the hearers of this letter from John. Okay, I don't want you to under—I want you to understand that so crystal clear. That's what's going on here. Actually, in AD 70, AD 70, a few years after Vespian took over, in one year, in one year, Peter, Paul, and Timothy were publicly, publicly executed by the government for their faith in one year. That would be like taking, you know, uh, Craig Rochelle and Rick Warren and Andy Stanley or whoever, three of the most prominent pastors, and that, that our government would publicly execute them in one year. AD 70 was maybe the most horrific year in church history. Uh, not only did those three pillars of our faith be publicly executed by the Roman government for their faith, but that is when they, the Romans also came in and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem. Absolutely destroyed. It was the falling of Jerusalem historically. We know that whether you're a, a Christian listening today or not. Historically, we all know that Jerusalem fell in AD 70. So in one year, and again, when I say this was written in, in AD 96, about 20 years later, intense persecution. And then in AD 92, a new emperor took over, and his name was Domitian. And Domitian required that everyone bow down to him, that they were worship him as God. That's, in fact, that's where Caesar is Lord came from. You were to claim Caesar is Lord. You go pinch some incense on the fire, throw it on the fire, and you would say, Caesar is Lord. And so, in that context versus Jesus is Lord, in that context, you're looking at several decades of immense persecution. There were laws set up intentionally to persecute Christians. Now, also think contextually here. If you're 30 years of age or younger, some of you watching today are, are 30, less than 30, 20, teenagers maybe. If you were 30 years of age or younger, at this period of time, the only thing you knew as a follower of Christ or for those who were followers of Christ from an outsider perspective is persecution. They had never seen, again, for 30 years, if you were under 30, you would have never seen Christians treated properly. All you would have seen is torture, murder, laws set up to prosecute. Um, um, they would take them just like John here. They would take some into exile if they didn't murder them. That's all they had seen. The other thing about the book of Revelation, there is prophecy with it, and we're going to spend some time in the future weeks talking about prophecy. And the other thing as we read Revelation, or maybe some of you are going to read ahead, it's not linear. We so often, especially here in the United States, we want to, we just, 
everything's linear. When I, I get that, it makes sense if it's linear. Revelation is not that case. It's not what happens next. It's rather what John sees next. If you watch as he's reading here, or, and, and pay attention to this as you read the book of Revelation, I hope you do with us, you'll see, and I saw next. And the next thing I saw was, and so it goes based on that. It's not a like, okay, this is year one, this is year two, this is year three. It's the next revelation that he received from, from God. The other thing that makes Revelation really difficult for us, and it's the last thing I'll cover before we're going to finish this chapter and apply it, is that Revelation is incredibly heavy in imagery. Here in the West, we don't, we're more logic-based. We're not imagery-based. The, East, you know, the Eastern countries still are. Other, a lot of parts of the world still are. And so imagery is really hard to explain. But at, at the same time, images drive emotion. I'm not a marketer, but I know from a marketing standpoint, but I'm watching enough commercials over the years, images drive emotion. And so it's not by accident that Jesus that shared this vision with John, and there's so much imagery, there's so many things that evoke emotion, but yet because it's hard to understand or because we want to jump forward and make it something that it is today that it was never intended to the first century, we, we mess up that, or we just, we just read about bears, and we lampposts and lights, and we're like, what in the world is going on here? And we get so confused. And so one of my passions and one of the desires of this series is to bring a lot of clarity to that confusion. So I just wanted to give you, this is week one. There's, it's a big introduction to this, and so I know it was maybe cl- classroom heavy here for the last 10 minutes or so, but I just want to set this up that, to understand this book was written under intense persecution, under Nero, Nero and Vespian, okay? And then under, uh, then under the, the next king, the, the Domitian that took place. I mean, you're looking at incredible persecution going on here. So let's continue. We're going to read in verse 10. I'm going to read through 10 through 20. I'm going to explain a little bit more of what we're talking about here before we start you know, looking at it in our own Lives. So verse 10, on the Lord's day, which would have Sunday potentially, I, don't, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around and those are the seven churches I mentioned earlier that were a major postal routes. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. I'm just going to stop right there. White is is, is a symbol of purity, okay, imagery of purity, but also of, of power, and, that, and, of course, this is talking about Jesus Christ. The Son of Man was a term that Jesus used for himself um, as the Messiah. His head and his hair were white as wool and white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. And, again, talking about a purification, also talking about the power behind him. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he had held up seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then, I, then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. That's key, by the way. Part of Revelation is for first century, not for prophecy. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my hand, right hand in the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so this one has some imagery, but not a ton, but I'm just going to, in about a minute and a half or two minutes, just explain what's going on. He helps us for once in this case. Later on, there's not like explanations, but this time he actually says the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Okay, the seven, the seven angels would not have been literal angels. Angels were not in charge of churches. Angels never had authority in the church. Most, most biblical scholars, and I would, I'm not a biblical scholar in that sense, but I would agree with, with them, believe that the angels represent the leaders of those churches, the pastors of those churches, which is a sermon in of itself. Essentially, Jesus says, and he reiterates what we see all throughout the Old Testament, that he is the leader of the church. He is the head of the church. He puts leaders in place, but he holds them in place. In other words, they are accountable to him. It's a, wow, the weight just like is crushing me right now in that then the responsibility to lead uh, in, in, the, in just how, how huge that is. Of these, seven, of these churches and as the role of a pastor. But then also talking about that double-edged sword that when there's people coming against the church, and he's talking really more specifically in the church that are, that are trying to steer away um, the church or trying to create disunity. The Bible's all about unity in the body of Christ, the whole book of Ephesians. That's kind of the whole theme that, that Paul wrote about, that his double-edged sword, in other words, he's going he's gonna to bring us some reckoning and but he's paraphrasing here, don't be messing with his church. Don't be causing strife in his church okay, that he set up, that he's in charge of. Even the things like feet, he talks about his feet. That would have been a thing like in that, in that first century, the judge would have stood, if you went into the courtroom, the judge uh, would have been elevated high over you. You would have stood underneath him. You would have bowed before him and you would have seen his feet. That's the thing you would have been looking up at most, and that you were under him, that, that he was in authority over you. And that's something you even see in different instances throughout Scripture. So there's meaning and symbolism behind that. Now, as we, as we move on, here's what I want to talk about. The first, the first century church should have hated the Romans. They should have absolutely hated the Romans, because of everything that they've done. But here's what's fascinating. If you connect the dots here, it's, it's so crystal clear that they spread the word of God to the Romans. They, they evangelized to the Romans. They shared their faith to the Romans. Why? Because the Romans were the ones who became the future Christians. And because the Romans became the future Christians, it's fascinating that apparently, even, even in the midst of this, even in the midst of the horrible things, even in the midst of family members being killed, that they would still be willing to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. You know, at, at the ascension of Jesus, there were 500 followers. There were 30 years of peace. There were about 40 years of absolute brutality. And then we see by AD 30, about or 300, about 300 years later, less than 300 years later, half the Roman Empire were followers of Jesus, over 350 million people. And here's where I want us to lean in today. You and I, we need to start, start thinking about advancing the kingdom, and we need to stop 
focusing on all the distractions. If the first century church under enormous persecution, 30 some years of persecution by the time this was written, if they, were, if they continued forward, folks, then sh- so should we. What are we doing? Are we advancing the kingdom forward? I said at the beginning, the book of Revelation, the purpose of Revelation is to give comfort and courage. Can you put yourself in the shoes of these listeners, of these readers? The church was young. The church was a baby. It's under its greatest persecution, arguably, arguably the greatest persecution it's ever experienced. And they had to be thinking, is this the end? How do we fight? How do we stay the course? There wasn't years and years and years and decades and decades of, of church history to go back to. They didn't know the future. All they saw was the now. And so God, Jesus sends this message of comfort. I see you. I'm aware of you. I mean, he talks about that. Look, I'm coming in the clouds. Every eye will see me, even those who pierced me, those who killed me, those who are killing you now, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. I'm the Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. He's encouraging them. He's encouraging, saying, I defeated death. He goes on to say, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. They needed to hear this in the midst of being tortured, in the midst of being death, in the midst of being sent into exile, they needed to know that they could be victorious. They needed to know that it wasn't in vain. They needed to know that Jesus was fighting for them. It would have been so easy to hide. It would have been so easy to complain. It would have been so easy to quit. It would have been so easy to walk away. But they didn't. They fought. They fought for the faith. As Paul himself said, they fought the good fight. Why? Because their lives have been changed. When your life is changed by Jesus Christ, you, you don't let all the distractions of this world keep you from moving the mission forward. Church, we must advance. We can't retreat. I don't know if you've figured this one out or not, and whether you're a follower of Christ listening today or not. There's a war going on. The enemy wants everything in his power to seek, to kill, destroy, devour. He's on a mission. His time is short. He knows that. He's good at what he does. We have to give him his due. And he doesn't want to see the church advance. The church was created by Jesus Christ. He said, I built this. I built this, and it will stand. Nothing will be able to stand against it. But are we living defeated? Are we choosing to allow X, Y, and Z to move us away from our mission? Have you got out of the habit of even attending church? I mean, if you're watching us online, that's great. And depending on your circumstances, we, we want to disciple you where, where you are. But if if you had a home church a year and a half ago and you haven't been back, why? I heard one guy say it like this, is it a health thing or is it a habit thing? If it's a health thing, take care of yourself. We, don't, we, we want you to be healthy. But if it's a habit thing, you've got to decide what's going on here. Why are, why are we allowing all these other distractions to push us back and we're not advancing the kingdom? Have you invited anyone to church lately? 
This is the one thing as we move forward as the Valley Church we're going to be talking about a lot. Because the last year and a half, it's been challenging to invite someone to church, right? I mean, just just is, right? For myself included, I'll be honest, I haven't. I've, I've invited a few people, I guess, but not, not like I used to. Because, you know, for obvious reasons. Well, it's time to move forward. One of the things that I say around here a lot is that an empty chair is not okay. I don't want to be able to hold up chairs on a Sunday morning in our church, okay? Because someone's sitting in them is what I'm referring to. An empty chair is not okay. See, someone's counting on you. When there's an empty chair in our space, that represents a life, that represents a soul, that represents a family, that represents generations that could be changed. But they're not here. It's empty. I think my question to you is, are you okay with that? Are we okay with that? I'm not. I'm not okay with that. What if, what if, can you imagine if we as the Valley Church or the Church Universal, capital C Church, what if we fought as hard as the first century church did? That's why I said, contextually, you need to know that they're under immense persecution, but we also kind of, we have an advantage. We know how things look in 300 years, or less than three, at this time it would have been 200 years from now, that half the Roman Empire, 350 million people are Jesus followers, which means that people witness to the Romans, which means that those who were doing the most horrible things, that means the church stayed on mission, even though people were dying left and right, they dug in and said, we are going to fight and we're going to fight and we're going to fight because Jesus Christ is the only one who can change lives. Where did they find his courage? What, what drove them to share their faith, even with people who wanted them dead? What drove them to share their faith, even knowing that it could end up with them in, a lion's, in, a, in an arena with a lion or on fire in a courtyard? What drove them? Well, I think it's what Jesus himself said in what we just read. Verse 17, 18, he said, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I thought that was so fascinating as I was rereading that passage. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church, and even the gates of hell will not stand against it. Well, what do you need to get into a gate? What do you need to have to get into a gate? Keys, right? When you have the keys to anything, right, or just think of, think of a gate, let's just stay with that metaphor that Jesus himself started with, a gate. And everyone's waiting to get into that place, and the person who has the keys isn't there, and we've all been there. Maybe it's an exciting party, or maybe it's some, you know the pool, right? Thinking pool, right, summer? And that person who shows up with the keys, at least in my experience, is a hero, right? I mean, everyone's like parting for them, like, let them go, let them go, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he has the power. She has the authority to let us in, to get us in there. 
And Jesus, I don't think it's by accident that in Matthew, when the church started, he's talking about the gates of hell. And then he says here at the end, the book end at the end, I have the keys, by the way. I have the keys to unleash. I'm alive. That's what he started with. I'm alive. I'm well. I defeated death. Even if you die, you're going to defeat death if you know me because you're going to be with me. I defeated it. It won't hold you in the grave. But I also hold the keys to it. As we wrap up today, I want to just kind of leave you with this. If your walk with Jesus has become stale, or you, when you meet with Jesus in the morning, or whenever you meet with him for reading the Bible or for prayer, if that's just become stale, I want to give you one action step. I want you to invite someone to church. I want you to invite someone to come sit with you. Whether you're in your living room, invite someone there. Whether you meet, you're going to be on a physical location or maybe you need to go back to a physical location, invite someone there. Here's what I've learned in my walk with Jesus. When I invite someone, when I start sharing my faith, when I start looking for opportunities to give those cards that we put out for the people that are on site, and we'll get you some online to come to church, it changes the trajectory of my faith. It gets exciting. It gets real. I get nervous. I start praying more. I start, you know, I start, I start expecting that God's going to have people cross my path. I've always found in my life, this is just a, this is a freebie. I've always found in my life, if anything, if things are getting stale, it's because I haven't invited anyone to church. It's because I have not looked for an opportunity to hear and respond to who God is asking me to make an invitation to. In fact, I would guarantee you that if you take me up on that offer this week, when you join us again here next week, you're going to have a bigger smile on your face, and you're going to have a little bit of juice going on within you that you got, you're getting excited again for your faith. As we close today, you know, Jesus told a lot of stories in, in a series of time about lost things. He talked about a lost coin. He talked about a lost son. He talked about a lost sheep. And then he, and then he followed it up by saying he's going to pursue them. That lost people matter to him. And if they matter to him, they should matter to us. See, folks, an empty seat is not okay. An empty seat is not okay. You are God's plan A, and there is no plan B to reach this world. And someone's counting on you. Someone's counting on you to have courage. Someone's counting on you to take to, to, to truth or this truth and apply it in your life. Someone's counting on you. Folks, this is heaven and hell stuff. Heaven's a real place. Hell's a real place. Revelation makes that clear. The Bible makes that clear. And someone's counting on you to, this week to make an invitation to come sit with them. We're going to receive communion now. And when we receive communion, we remember that Jesus was victorious. That when he says here, when he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, I'm it, who was and who is and who is to come. And then he goes on and says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, behold, I am alive forever and ever. We remember the death, the cross, the substitute that he paid for our sin, but we also remember and we celebrate what he did for us. And so go ahead and take your, your bread right now. And when he was with his disciples, he said, this represents my body. That's going to be broken for you.
And even though there's going to be persecution, even there's going to be all kinds of other things that come across your way, all kinds of distractions, I don't want you to ever forget what I've done for you and what I've done for others. And he said, take this and remember it to me. Let's receive that together. And in the same way, he took the juice and he said, this represents my blood which is going to be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, when you take this and receive this, never forget what I've done for you. Let's receive this together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the book of Revelation. Even though we've just touched the surface today, hopefully some context even of understanding the persecution and, the, and what is going on in the lives of these listeners maybe resonated with us. But then knowing that they continued to mission forward, they didn't stop, they didn't, they, at, under the penalty of literal death or, or isolation or, or exile, they continued on with the mission. And so, God, I pray that what we talked about of an empty seat not being okay and that, we, that someone's counting on us and that there is no plan A, or excuse me, no plan B. We're the, only, we're the plan A to reach this world. God, bring someone across our path this week. Give us the courage to make an invitation to come sit with us, whether we're sitting in our living room or sitting out in our backyard listening or watching this or whether we're in a physical facility, that we would have the courage, myself included, to make an invitation. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app to stay connected with all things the Valley. And if today's message impacted you, share it with a friend. Because changed lives, changed lives.